to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be um, looking in Daniel chapter 4. If you want to open up your Bible or turn to your device, we'll have uh, most of the scriptures up on the the screen as well. Um, So we are... um, Getting back to the book of Daniel after last week in Easter, I hope you had a wonderful week um, celebrating um, the Lord's resurrection and what he's done and is continuing to do in our lives. Um, This week's going to be a little bit different as far as the way that um, this this historical narrative flows, the way that this story just pieces together. It's one entire story, and so you have some options when you want to preach through something like this. You can either... um, bring out the main idea and just bring out certain scriptures that, that reveal that main idea, um, or you can kind of walk through the passage just like a story. And so I wanted to kind of keep it together and walk through the story. Um, so we're going to read a lot of scripture. We're going to read all 37 verses, not up front, but we're going to read them piece by piece because in this story, as Nebuchadnezzar um, opens it up, he just walks you through from uh, one period at the first to then this, this process that God took him through, and to, then to the end, and he kind of gives us a, a running narrative of how that worked together to get to that end, like Jason brought up at the, the very uh, first, um, to where he come to this conclusion about the Lord. And so you'll have some time to think through um, what has happened there. Um, I, I wanted to give an outline also um, of, of just kind of what we're going to look at today um, so you can see verses 1 through 3 there. Um, are these true words of worship? Or is this just lip service? So you have about 50-50 as far as is Nebuchadnezzar um, coming to a true saving faith in chapter 4. So scholars are about 50-50 on that. Some would say, yes, this is the the, the record of um, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion experience. Others would say, well, he's done this before. He's giving words and saying good things about God, but he is still saying to Daniel several places, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, that um, you're one who is able to understand and interpret because you're connected to the Most High, and, and the Most High is almost one of the gods. And so there's some language in there, and we're not going to spend a lot of time. Um, and then verses 4 through 18, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So he's just going to walk us through that dream. And then uh, verses 19 through 27, Daniel's interpretation of that. Um, and then verses 28 through 33, um, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's brokenness. Um, and then the last part, Nebuchadnezzar's heart, verses 34 through 37, um, his, his response. And so again, is that true conversion? And worship or just lip service. So let me pray, um, and then we'll dive off into these verses. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thank you that you give us a beautiful picture here. As Jason mentioned earlier, um, that you are slow to anger, that your, your mercy and your grace abound towards us. And so, Father, um, as we see you treating Nebuchadnezzar and all who would hear and read this story with that same type of grace and mercy, 
Though he didn't deserve it, he could never be worthy of it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, everyone in this story, no one could deserve this. This grace and mercy that you pour out. And so, Father, we pray that you would allow us to think through what that means for us. Whether we're a person who does not know the Lord or whether we're a person who um, is, is walking with the Lord, would you help us to think through the grace that's been poured out on us, the mercy that you've given us, continuing from our salvation and justification into our sanctification. We pray that you would teach us in this time, guard people from my thoughts, my own uh, misleadings, and let the Holy Spirit guide them into truth as you promised to do. We pray for some of the other churches in this area, Father. We pray that you would be proclaiming your gospel through the Spirit, through your Word, um, at some of the churches around, whether that's Woodland Acres, just a couple of miles away, um, Southern Hills Baptist, just a couple of miles away, um, Victory, Life Church, um, the churches that are surrounding this area, Father. Would you do a work of bringing the light of the gospel clearly and in this city of Tulsa, Father, if there are false versions of Jesus, if there are um, peddlers um, using Jesus for their own means, Father, would you just completely remove that? Would you allow the true, glorified version of you to be what we exalt and trust in? In your name we pray. Amen. So if you want to look there in uh, Daniel chapter 4, um, just up front, um, I want to say that there's a, there's a bookend on the front of this, and there's a bookend on the end of it. And that's a purposeful thing that writers do. So this is a literary device. And anytime that uh, there's several places in the Bible, lots of places in the Bible where they do this, they will start out saying something at the first of a chapter. Um, and sometimes it's a whole entire letter, and they will come back to, to, to that main thought at the end of the letter. And so in this chapter, this is a great example. And hopefully as you're studying the Bible, reading the Bible, you'll begin to pick up on those things. So at the first, he, he makes these statements about God. At the end is another book, and he makes the same statement. He's going to walk us through the process of how he did that because he probably wrote it right at, at the end of that process. You don't like you know, start out saying one thing and then you don't know what's going to happen for the next you know, 12 years or 30 years. But he, he, he gets through this process and then he's thinking back and Daniel records what Nebuchadnezzar's story was. So here's what Nebuchadnezzar was like at the first. Here's what happened. And then at the end, here's what happened. And so um, just kind of some bookends there. Uh, and the point of that is that, that that literary device brings out a purpose that we'll hopefully we'll see. So um, Nebuchadnezzar, at the very beginning, notice in verses 1 through 3, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So again, if we just look at the words here, some people would interpret this to say, um, it seems like he's giving glory to God. He calls him most high God. Well, then the other people on the other side of that say, most high God among other gods? So there's this question, is he saying, no, there's only now I see one true God, or is it that you're the most high God 
among all these gods. Now, you guys probably know if you've studied or been around or been involved in any type of missions um, endeavor that across the world, syncretism is this thing that happens when uh, maybe missionaries land into a country and they bring in the true gospel and they have true doctrine and what happens in polytheistic religions is a lot of times um, the missionaries are so shocked and happy because the people are very welcoming to the message, and they say, yes, we would like to put our faith in this God. This is incredible. And six months later, they're all excited, and they baptize some people, and then six months later, they're hearing people talk about, like, well, on Mondays, we worship this Jesus you introduced us to. On Tuesdays, our family gathers, and we worship this God. And Wednesdays, we gather, and we worship as a family this God. And the missionaries going, oh, no. We reported it back to the home agency, and this was syncretism. They took one truth, and they added some other beliefs, some other doctrines to that, and come up with a whole new belief system. And so that's just syncretism. It's still around this day. So that's the question with this um, situation with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, some would say that he's still holding on to that idea of other gods. Um, so it's a polytheistic place. We know that. We've seen that in those early chapters. Uh, he reversed to God as the most high God six times in this chapter. So a lot of people w- would say that's what's happening. God has clarified to him. So maybe this is true conversion because he's now saying you are the most high God. When you go to the very end, we're going to see that he makes some other statements, those bookends, that he makes some other statements that seem like there's a break between the storyline of him mentioning to Daniel, oh, Daniel, you're able to interpret this. We haven't got there yet in this passage. And, and, And the gods speak through you almost. So that's confusing. But you get to the end, and then he's talking with clarity a little bit more. So we'll see. Um, notice also he says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So again, some people question that say, well, yeah, if if you're on the benefiting end of that, of course you want to talk about, well, he's a good God. Um, But he says, Most High of all these gods later on. So um, we have to just think through what that looks like. I, I think that can be very accurate in the depiction of Christianity in America. The reason I bring that out is that's probably what you're sitting around in your workplaces, your neighborhoods, maybe extended family members, close acquaintances, um, people in our area who have knowledge about God. They wouldn't say God completely doesn't exist. They want to give um, acknowledgement that there is probably a God and he's powerful they might not know what sovereign means, but they would say, and you know, and I know the story. I mean, I know the points. Jesus died on the cross. It's for our sins. And I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to be a good person. But are they living with this idea that I surrender to you because you're worthy? I, I lay down my autonomy, which is pride, right? And we're going to see that's the, the biggest thing he's trying to show today. And he lays down, and are we laying down our pride? Are we laying down our autonomy, having things my way, and laying down along with my way, my sins? That is someone who understands complete surrender to a worthy God. And and we don't live for him because we're just scared of fire one day. We live for him because we see him as this great, wonderful God who's worthy of our lives. So uh, I think that's very clear in the area that we live in. Um, So 
Um, that may be something that we can see as they, we go on through the, the rest of this. Look in verses 4 through 18, kind of a big section here, and this is the, kind of the storyline of his second dream. And so, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So been there, done that. Remember, we've seen this happen before, right? Um, At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belteshazzar. And notice the contrast. He, he gives a contrast here. After the name of my God. Remember we learned that he, he changed his name. The king changed his name from Daniel to Belteshazzar, which Bel was one of the gods. And so remember that. And so um, he even makes reference. So some people that say there's a, he, he included that in this section, Neb, Nebuchadnezzar did, because he's making a contrast in his mind. Almost kind of like, how, how foolish of me to change uh, his name and connect it to this God when I've learned now, end of story, there is only one true God. And so that some people say that he references it that, that way purposefully. Um, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Uh, okay, so what are we talking about there? Are we talking about lots of gods? Uh, and I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached the heavens, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So we're introduced to this second dream. It's a very clear dream. There's, there's no little secret pockets. There's nothing that you're supposed to be interpreting about. Um, uh, don't, don't get caught up when you're reading, um, when you go into prophetic words um, and prophetic um, literature. Um, don't get caught up in especially apocalyptic Things, don't try to make apocalyptic things just black and white because you don't know exactly what that's going to mean. You don't have to like wonder, oh, what does that mean about the branches that the, every, everyone's eating from it? And so sometimes when you're reading that type of literature, don't get so specific on one tree. Step back and see the whole forest. Don't get distracted from the forest of what he's trying to say by trying to get caught up in just, you know, what does that mean? What is this little part of the tree? Um, so there's something about times of prosperity versus times of suffering, that we have a tendency in times of prosperity to put it kind of on autopilot. Have you noticed that? Um, he's relishing in his vast, his vast accomplishments, in his, his success, his power, his prosperity. Um, have you noticed this w- with yourself? It, it's, it's a difficult mystery, but when are the times that you've sought the Lord the most, been desperate in seeking him? grown closer in dependence upon him? Is that during times of prosperity and ease? Or is that during times of true heartfelt grief, suffering, loss? For many people, it would, it, it would be clearly times of suffering, times when there are 
overwhelming obstacles that hit your life, that drop down in your life, and you feel like there is nothing I can do about this. And almost our first response may be like we talked about last week was, God, how did you allow this? Why did you? And then just a little bit later, we see clearly like this was not an overwhelming obstacle for God. Maybe I was allowing my feelings to over overdrive my truth that I know about God, his sovereignty. So that's what he's relishing in, his accomplishments and all that. So this tree, here's Daniel 4, 13 through 18. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now this is not Christ. This is probably just an angel. This language is talking about an angelic being. Um, he proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with dew of heaven. Now notice the change from this tree to the, the personal pronouns, he. Notice the switch there in that verse. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. So um, a couple of things with this. We're not going to spend a long time on it. So when he says that this tree is going to be cut down, and now all these things that have been prospering flee from it, remember earlier we talked about when it was the statue and the different kingdoms that had ruled? And remember we talked about the, the last couple there, um, Rome was one of the ones. And so notice what it says there, that um, leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Remember the last, the lower legs were iron and bronze, remember that? And so um, in that, remember we, there's some prophetic language that some people believe that there's going to be in the future, even in our time in the future, um, this one world power that's going to rise up. And so some people have said that that could be a form of, not that it's going to take the name Rome, but a form of like Rome too. So some people say, see, here's another reference. The tree's cut down, Babylon's removed. That's the tree because this, this tree is uh, a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're about to find that out. But the stump is left and bronze and um, iron are left there. And so some people say that's, that, that's um, um, reminiscent of what the statue was before, and it's pointing back to that, that there's, there's going to be this kingdom that will come back up in the future. So you can spend some time thinking about that. But then when it switches to the personal pronouns, let him be wet, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth, let his mind be changed. This is specifically talking about Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to see this as we go on. Um, let's look at the, the next part. Um, one of the key things he says this, in verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, talking about these angelic beings, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So again, we have this picture that he even sees that the, this, the sovereignty of God in this situation. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Well, Nebuchadnezzar at this point is not the lowliest of men. 
right? That's what he learns at the end of this. Um, and what's the reason that God is going to do this, this process? Notice it says, so that all the living may know, may hear about the Most High. So we, we see here that he goes through and now says, Belteshazzar, Daniel, will you clarify this dream to me? So in verses 19 through 27, it's where he kind of interprets this dream. He starts interpreting, but he kind of does a little bit of um, teaching here also. Then Daniel, verse 19, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. This is the guy who had said earlier, you know, hey, if you can't tell me the interpretations, we're killing you. You know, we're, we're tearing you literally limb for limb. And they didn't mean like a nice, like lethal injection or something like that. They meant literally they had ways of tearing you limb from limb. And it was a slow process. And people got to watch. And then if they, you know, didn't like it, they could get torn limb from limb. So this is the same guy. And so uh, Belteshazzar answered and said, so Daniel says, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He doesn't give him the interpretation yet. <laughs> he goes, spends some time with the Lord, gets the interpretation from the Lord, and it's bad news again. Because the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying the tree clearly chopped down, right? You're going to be removed. This period of time, this second dream, everyone believes that this is probably um, late towards the very end of Nebuchadnezzar's life. This is 32 years at least past chapter 1. So remember chapter 1 and chapter 2 um, when the, those things first heart happened and there was the, the, the statue? Um, this, and, and he was told then, what was Nebuchadnezzar told then? You're the head, right? Remember the head? And it's the head of gold and his whole kingdom was gold and he said, you're going to be removed. This is 32 years later. How much has happened? Looks great to me. Things look wonderful. Daniel, tell me the interpretation. You know, Daniel's been probably walking around for 32 years going, man, things go bad. This guy's, no, no tell him what this guy's going to do. And now it's been clarified again. The second dream comes. And notice Daniel's compassion and loyalty to this evil, dangerous despot. This guy had went in and destroyed Judah and ripped off thousands upon thousands of their youngest, brightest young people, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And what do they do? They come and they, they, they pillage those cities. They destroyed things. They would go in two or three different times, but they go in and they take off these books and they indoctrinate them, teach them about the false gods. They change their names from, God, from names that, that were tied to the one true God, and now they give them names that are tied to false deities. They also indoctrinated them in all of their culture. They made them dress and eat and all these things. And so for 32 years, he's been under this evil president, this evil ruler. And notice, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Notice his respect and how he honors and has compassion once he gets clarity. This man could be such an enemy, and yet he is treating him with grace and honor and respect. And I bring that out because sometimes in our Christian culture, 
that's not the way we treat people who are different from us, who have different beliefs than us, who have different lifestyles from us. If we're not careful, we quickly go into enemy attack. They're evil. Let's blow them out of the water. God, rain down your, your, your fire on these people. You're an abomination. Well, there, there's 53 abominations listed in the Bible that many of us walk in all the time. But we want to label two or three main ones and go post it or go attack those and blow them out of the water. We tend to consider lost people these enemies. Jesus was very clear about how we would treat lost people. Um, Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. You see this heart with Daniel. In fact, Daniel's about to get into sharing truth and pleading for him to repent. Instead of, oh man, finally. I've been waiting 32 years. God, let it happen today. Take this guy out. You ever struggle with that at a heart level? You may not say it out loud. I feel that way behind someone who's sitting in the left turn lane and they wait that one second, two seconds, like I'm ready for God to rain down terror on them sometimes. How much more so if it's someone who completely disagrees with my Christian lifestyle and, and, and disagrees with honoring God? I know there are lots of scriptures that are also pleading for God's quick vengeance in, in the Old Testament, but is that prescriptive? That that's what we're supposed to be like? Or is it descriptive of that writer in that psalm? Maybe it's descriptive of his feelings. God, surely you're going to... And we don't get to the end of that psalm, and God always just destroys them and kills them all, like, like the author wanted, like David wanted, or like the author wanted, right? And said, usually the story goes on, and God shows, I'm with you, even though all these enemies are surrounding you. I'm with you in the midst of all this. So um, notice his compassion and care there. It might be a helpful exercise for all of us just to see if our own personal views are more Christ-like or is it being so much influenced by these little sub-Christian cultures that, that we can pick and choose to be a part of and now who's not in our little circle? Well, then they're the enemy and we can't stand them. Daniel here, a guy who had destroyed his family, threatened to kill over and over, him and all his closest people, all of his Jewish Israelite brothers that went through so much terror because of this guy, and immediately he wants to show concern and compassion towards this despot. So how do we handle those who we could be labeled or we could label as our enemies? Are you good with those people? Sometimes even in the church, not just the people that are those you know, wicked people that we want nothing to do with, thank God I'm not like them. Sometimes it's people inside the church even, and they just have different views on the way they spend their finances, different views on the way they raise their children, different views on parenting, different views on education, different views on uh, worship services. We turn on them. So notice a destroyer, a Hitler-like guy. And Daniel is showing grace and mercy and compassion. Daniel gives a picture of, uh, of this as we go on. So um, some beautiful stuff. Notice the next section in verses 20 through 23. The tree that you saw, here he goes. He's been nervous. 
which grew and became strong so that its top branches reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all. Talking about this vast kingdom that's been provided. Grace has been provided. Under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reach, reaches the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. You're the most powerful man on the planet. Look at all that God has done. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. So that's his interpretation. And then he goes on, look in verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So notice Daniel's answer, interpretation, the tree is you, and God's removing you. The tree represents you. Um, Daniel goes on to show it's the Most High that is doing this. He clarifies, this is God. Remember in chapter 1 and chapter 2, I brought out that God wanted to start out this book showing the whole world, this is me doing this. Here, here, here's the king of Judah. Here's the, the king Nebuchadnezzar. And all of these things that happen, don't think that I wasn't the one who orchestrated every bit of this. I was the one working here. I was the one making these ha things happen. I was the one allowing, the allowing these things to happen. God, again, is clarifying, this is me. God has done this. And he foretells um, this mental disorder, this mental illness that's going to come and hit Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the seven periods of time, most people would believe that it's seven years because this is later in Nebuchadnezzar's life, and he doesn't have much time left. He dies pretty soon after this. Um, but in this, he, he has this picture. I don't know if this is where I have notes. It's, actually, there's um, boanthropy and lycoanthropy um, are actually disorders. Like, we have this, and, and we don't have these categories in psychology. Um, like, if we didn't have these, then, then this would be messed up. But there are actually uh, mental disorders where people go out into the fields um, and they act like a, a grazing ox or a grazing cattle. And so, boanthropy and lycoanthropy are both. Um, lycanthropy is, is, remember, most people tie it to the half wolf, um, but actually it could be any kind of animal. So both of these are actual mental disorders where people think that they are part of that. And there, there's been cases even in the 1900s, I'm sure in the 2000s, of people at mental wards to where the, the outside areas with the big walls and stuff, people would go and graze. Now, they didn't grow the, the long fingernails and stuff and their hair get all undone like happens with the king here. But just so you'll know, this is a real situation. Now, notice, notice this call to repentance. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. 
Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that they may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So he's saying here, at the first of that, he says, after a period of seven years, your kingdom's going to be restored. You're going to have this mental disorder hit, and you're going to be removed from all that you've built and all that you've done, and you're going to be um, out completely as, as a, just a crazy person. But then there's going to be a time when the Lord is going to give you back your kingdom. You see the grace and mercy upon this guy? Has he deserved any of this? Did he deserve the kingdom in the front, the front end? An evil ruler who is going for power and riches and destroying other people's lives? You see that, that God is this sovereign God, and even with this Hitler-like guy, is pouring out grace and mercy towards him? Is that, is that our heart with people we disagree with? Is that our heart? With people that are different from us, have different beliefs? Notice the call for repentance, forsaking his sin. So how would this be an offer of salvation to Nebuchadnezzar? He doesn't tell him to ask Jesus into his heart. He doesn't ask him if he wants to get baptized. He doesn't give directions for go get into the Word and spend some time in a quiet time, Right? But notice, it's a call to repentance. It's a call to turn, repent from your sins. In the Old Testament, that's how gray sometimes those passages were. Sometimes that, that's how gray um, the communication was. And so we have to step back and go, man, look at God's sovereign power. For those who would say, man, I clearly see that Nebuchadnezzar came to faith here. Man, is that not God's grace? He, he never was going to understand Jesus as God's son on the cross right then, right? He didn't even understand Israel's sacrificial system at all. And look what God's doing to all peoples. Remember at the beginning what he started out? To all peoples, to all nations, to all tribes of people. I want to tell you what this God has done for me. So we see here this call to repentance, some beautiful things. Whether he responds correctly or not, he gives lip service at least, at, at worst, but if this is true, look at God's grace here. What would it be like and what would it take for God to get your attention? So if you're sitting here and you know all the truths of the gospel, you know all the truths from the Bible way beyond Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's gray, difficult situation, man, how much do you take for granted? How much do you look over the grace that's been given us and the clarity of the new Testament. So um, look at verses 28 through 30 here. This is a picture of the city. Um, you'll see, so this is a, a, an artist's rendition of what the city looked like. So the palace is just incredible. If you kind of notice clearly, there's the Euphrates River. So just, I mean, you know, who gets to build right on this beautiful river? And, and the towers, I think there's like 180 different towers. Look at the walls. There's even walls within walls. And so there's the palace in the middle. And then you can see that there's a temple up there, the Temple of Marduk. So remember the main god was Marduk. And so that was the temple. So this is a rendition that they put together um, of what this place looked like. Um, I could go on and on with a list of things about this. And so verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, what, what we've just heard. At the end of 12 months, 12 months after he had got this second dream, 
and Daniel had interpreted for him. Twelve months later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So he's looking out upon this vast kingdom. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Can you see his heart? Nothing happened. 32 years, my kingdom being ripped from me. Look at it. Another second dream, I'll be removed. Nothing's happened. Look, have I not created all this and done all this for my majesty? Then look at the next verse. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So I have a picture here. This is a famous picture of what um, they thought through the years of what he looked like. And so um, what would it take to get your attention? Like, like clearly, you probably don't have a palace, a kingdom. Hopefully, God's not going to do this, right? Enjoy God's mercy when he's laying it out in front of you. Enjoy God's grace while you can. Receive it with joy. That's the message that he's getting to us in our day. For, for him, when he called into this repentance, that's what he was wanting, and he just didn't respond. What, what tempting lies are always before your thoughts. What, what tempting lies are leading you away from God? What things are being placed in your mind, your, your vision, that, that may be leading you off the path with him? So then we get to Nebuchadnezzar's response. So seven years go by, or sometimes seven can just mean a completeness, a complete time. So some people say it's not just seven years. It may have been a longer time period, but most people kind of agree that it's seven years because, again, they can, they can track how long Nebuchadnezzar was alive, and they know when this one dream came into his life, and they know the year he died, and they knew, know this. So most would say seven years. At the end of these days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And this is the king who had just had his kingdom ripped from him, and have been brought low and humbled. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Man, do you see the grace of God? 
Just look at the beauty that he, that he sends towards us. Some people may be struggling with that idea of, well, you, you just don't realize how hard my heart is or how far away I've got from God. Do you see? God's, God's grace and mercy go way beyond how far we could get from Him. No matter what, how far, no matter what you've done. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. So for you, I don't know whether He's going to be in heaven one day with us. Um, a lot of people will lean and say, yes, I believe these last verses would reveal that his heart has been changed. Kind of looks like it's a difference, doesn't it? From the, from, even though he kind of gave lip service at the beginning. Early on in the middle, he's talking about, well, yeah, you, Daniel, you're, you're an interpreter, and the, these other gods, they're, they're powerful through you. The Most High speaks to you. At the end, he completely has a change of heart. And we saw right before this a very prideful man that's changed in that last section. So it may be that we get to heaven and we get to see Nebuchadnezzar. It may be that we get to heaven and he's not there. What's clear is this call to repentance. What's clear is this idea of pride that God is clearly wanting to destroy. Um, we may not have a true kingdom with people, fortresses, and towers, but we do build our own little kingdoms, don't we? You ever noticed the pride that goes along with your desire for control. We build our little kingdoms and we build our own little walls around my kingdom. This king knew how to use his power to get all things his way. And even if that meant heads must roll, right? We've seen that repeatedly with him. Pride is basically that. I want it my way. Acting as if there is no sovereign. There is no God. We saw it with Satan, Adam, Eve, Nebuchadnezzar, and you and me, right? Sin in its essence, even in just a, a tempting moment, is us telling God, you shut up and sit down. I will do this right now. I will go and pursue this. Shut up and sit down. I'll let you know when I need you again to be God. Every single moment of sin is that. Sometimes it's more than that, but it's at least that to this God who could rain down fire from heaven on us, and yet His grace and patience. Again, not a palace or anything like that that we would have, but think through your own life. Where is pride welling up? The danger of this is I want us to see a clarity and understanding on pride. The most dangerous and insidious type of pride for, for people that listen to God's Word is spiritual pride. We have to be careful because um, we, we've got to be a people who understand that sometimes the most dangerous thing about, about the church is we get so isolated off that we just have spiritual pride. We're better than people. We would never say that, but we are, uh, of course we are. And we don't have to say it. it. It's welling up inside our hearts. We would not like to admit that about ourselves. But then secondly, um, the world's view, of, we have to look at this, the difference between the world's view of pride, which is the goal of life, Versus the biblical view of pride, where it, it's your number one enemy. And so we have to distinguish those things. And also, we have to, I want us to be a people who we, we must understand that and see clearly that how pride, which God despises, 
has crept its way into the church and become something that's actually sought after. So think through um, the 1900s. Pop psychology became really uh, predominant. And so pop psychology started um, having a a big movement. And um, the church looked to that and started going, oh, there's some good ideas that we could borrow from. So um, pride, the the self-esteem movement, the self-fulfillment movement, all of that became syncretized with the gospel. Here's the gospel. You should feel better about yourself. You should think more highly of yourself. You should have more pride. Things that God despises pride became a virtue inside the church. So let me track you through real quickly. Just I want you to see the, the history of how this happened and then be aware of it when you're around. Now, now here's the danger. When I walk you through this, if you're not careful, you're going to be prideful. Can't believe that church over there that's doing that. Oh, I didn't even realize that they, that's where this started. Oh my gosh, they do that all the time. That's their only message. They are so pitiful. If we're right about it, it should only lead to humility and going, God, thank you that you saved me from that because my heart would want to believe that. The prosperity gospel, you, we say we hate it. But when something bad hits my life, immediately my cry is, God, haven't I been doing all of these things for you? Why did you let this happen to me? I'm doing all these right things compared to these people. Why did you let something bad happen to me? That's prosperity gospel thinking rooted in our hearts, whether we say we hate it or not. So um, Vincent, um, Norman Vincent Peale, Power of Positive Thinking. Very popular bestseller book. Uh, He was a best-selling author. Um, He was immediately criticized for dropping significant doctrines and aspects of biblical Christianity for an upbeat message of Um, self-help. He was also criticized for blending and mixing our American, kind of just our success-driven, go kill it, you've earned it, mentality into a mixture of theology that was completely vacuous of Christ and the cross. Why would you talk about the cross and suffering when you don't want to bring up people's sin? And so he was criticized immediately. That was early on. But then a very well-known pastor had a small church plant about this size in Los Angeles. His name was Robert Schuler. Now it's the, the, the Crystal Cathedral. And so he took that and said, man, this, this Peel guy, he's got some good things. People are really drawing to it. There wasn't YouTube likes. There wasn't TikTok likes at that point. There wasn't Twitter followers. But man, people were going and buying these books, bestseller after bestseller after bestseller. So um, Peel, uh, then uh, this guy, um, Robert Schuler goes, this could work in the church. People want to hear this. This is powerful out there. So um, self-love became the focus. So he has this product that this is the book that comes out, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. Self-Esteem. People feel low about themselves. Why would we talk about anything that makes them feel even worse? They need to have high self-esteem. It's it's, it's what's needed. It's the New Reformation. The next book was Self-Love. Believe in the God who believes in you. Isn't that a good God? Believe in the God who believes in you. Be happy attitudes. This is a book on the Sermon on the Mount. So when I teach you the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I think it is the law of Jesus saying, blessed are these things, and guess what? You can't be like this. You can't live these out. 
you were going to need someone to come and live these out for you, and it's me. As Jesus is teaching this, go be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. It's supposed to crush you. The, the law was supposed to crush us to make us see our need for Jesus. We could never keep the law. We could never be holy. We could never be moral on our own. So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus opens up the Beatitudes with, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a brokenness, a spiritual bankruptcy, this picture of I, I would, this beggar, this poor in spirit, is this broken, bankrupt person, um, spiritually bankrupt, crying out for mercy. Jesus goes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those people who understand that, they get salvation. And so the law was supposed to crush you, and it was supposed to show us that we couldn't live this out. And this guy, Schuler, says, man, these are just feelings. We should let our feelings guide us in this. No more negative talk, no more things like that. Thousands of churches began asking, how could we grow like this church? Um, then if you just add this, another element, self-love and self-esteem plus the miraculous and the experiential. 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. A little thing you may have heard about this is called the Word of Faith movement. It's all around us. Some people say it was founded here. So, so two or three of the, the biggest um, centers are here to this day. When you combine pop psychology virtues, love yourself more, you need higher self-esteem with added promise that God is working miracles all the time, constantly. And it's this experiential thing that like in that room over there, the Holy Spirit's not there. And outside, he's not there. All these other places. But we come in this place and you get a guitar and a piano going. And man, he shows up just doing a little dance. And we, we can just all feel it. And it's all the chills and all this, the, 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 the bumps and all these, these things. And that's, that's what happens. So it's this experiential thing. Um, you tell me I'm great, you meet all my felt needs, God is obligated to show up and prove himself, and then if you add on to it that you are guaranteed and God is obligated to give you all the health, all the wealth, and all the prosperity, all you have to do is just ask it in Jesus' name. Man, who wouldn't want that? And then one last ingredient this is, this is, so I've walked you through, these are times, these are decades of the church since the, since the 40s and 50s, where this has become what church looks like. And then you get to some of the most, a little more subtle, it's your unlimited personal prosperity and your unlimited personal potential. Man, it feels really good to know that you have the right and the freedom to go out there and kill it and be so successful and prosper, prosperous, but if you even do it for God, it's God-ordained potential. So life points every week is not a sermon out of God's Word. It's four ways to overcome a downsized economy. Bow your heads, close your eyes at the end, and now cry out for repentance from what? You haven't told me about sin or salvation or what Christ has accomplished. You've told me how to have good money strategies when the economy's bad. Three secrets to the perfect marriage. There are no three secrets to a perfect marriage. Five, five points to great Christian children. There are no five points that give you great Christian children. There's not a hundred of those. So that's what's being sold. Those are the products. Pride. Do we not see how dangerous it is to take things that God wants us to be warned from 
and despises, and yet those things have become popular diets in the church. So that's the warning. When you see these things, the, the, the last thing had a slide, when, when it's me and my unlimited prosperity, unlimited potential, your God-ordained potential, self-love, self-esteem, self-potential, health, wealth, prosperity, all, what's at the root of every one of those? Pride. Pride. And it's not out in Hollywood on a corner looking hor- horrific. It's in the church looking really, really tempting and good. And we've taken this and said that doesn't work anymore. It's all about you. And we've taken the Jesus of the cross who said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and give up everything and follow me. And that Jesus doesn't sell anymore. And we've recreated him into a very successful westernized Jesus that possibly I could talk you into following. So that's how dangerous this pride is. That was something that was warned against then and now has become the main diet of many places. Now, if you walk out today and go, man, I didn't even know that. I, I listened to this and this and this. I hear those sermons. Oh, I can't believe. I'm so thankful that we are going to be a, you've missed it. It only should lead us to humility. So as we close, I hope you see the beauty of God's grace towards Nebuchadnezzar. I hope you see the beauty of God's grace towards us who have the full understanding of the gospel. Um, If we were to look at our hearts in conclusion um, as we go towards the Lord's Supper, um, Michael Horton says this, My heart has conceived and committed sins that my hands have never carried out. My heart has conceived and committed sins that my hands have never carried out. That, that's what God sees. He doesn't just see the actions that we do. He sees the danger of those type of hearts, those hearts needing the righteousness of Christ to cover them, to forgive with, with the blood of Christ. And so that's what he sees when we look at that. When we look at um, turning towards the Lord's Supper, this grace that's been poured out um, on Nebuchadnezzar, is it true worship or is it lip service that we see with Nebuchadnezzar? You can go home and think through it and read through it and spend some time praying. The point that God wants to get to us in our day is, where is pride in your heart? At the end, Nebuchadnezzar said, God gives grace to these, this, the lowliest. Where is your heart? Is it filled with pride in different ways? Is that pride that could be Again, just a church that wants to be solid biblically. The flip side of that is spiritual pride. It's dangerous when you're a church that wants to be solid on doctrine. If you're solid on doctrine and not a loving expression of joy, something's off. Have you set up a little kingdom using your power or your attitudes or your money or your position to get what you want? That's pride. Selfish ambition And just the the pride of a hardened heart that that resists and doesn't want to listen to God, that doesn't want to respond, even though you know just humility stinks. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, 
As it is written, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Meaning, in vain do they dress up and show up to a service on a Sunday morning. If their heart is filled with these pride, prideful ways, and yet they come and do this and shake hands and talk for a little bit and have a meal together and, and sing some words and hear some words taught, and my heart is hardened, pride is ruling. And God is opposed to that. So I'd ask you as we go to the Lord's Supper, where's your heart at with those areas that we've seen today with Nebuchadnezzar? We practice um, open communion, meaning if you're in good standing with your, your own church or if you're coming in here and, and you've been, uh, you're a believer who's been baptized and you're walking in faith and, and repentance continually, that um, you're free to partake with us. You don't have to be a member here to partake of that. But if, if you are um, a person who would say, I've got just pattern sin going on, then, then we would tell you, refrain, do not partake of the Lord's Supper with us. Um, and for people that are not believers, if you're not a believer and you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, don't partake of the cup and the wine, but instead take this time to consider and cry out to the Lord for His mercy and grace that He offers so freely. Consider the story of what Christ has done for us. Consider the grace that He's poured out to this Nebuchadnezzar, Hitler-like guy. So I'm going to pray, and then we will... Um, Go and um, get the elements, and then we'll um, partake together. Okay.